Lord, I thank you so much for what you're doing here in Blaine, what you're doing in this church. God, I thank you for being our provider. I thank you for being our protector. I thank you for being our Savior and our Lord. And so as we turn to December, and as we celebrate Christmas, let's make sure that we make it all about Jesus. Lord, may Jesus, may you be at the center of it. Lord, help us to make you the center of this season and every season. Because as we sang, you are the king. And so we're here to declare that this morning. I pray that as we open your word um, to, uh, to what can be kind of a difficult passage to read, Lord, that you would uh, go before us, teach us, lead us, guide us, and speak to us. Holy Spirit, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, before we get started, I actually totally forgot about this. Go figure. We got a little video. Looking at the chaos all around us, it can be hard to see God's grand design. Some pieces are easy and familiar, but some don't seem to fit. And a few pieces appear to be missing altogether. So is life just random? Is God really in control? Does he see something that we don't? With time and patience and trust in the designer of life itself, we'll see that God has all the pieces carefully laid out. And there will be a day when everything will come into focus and we'll see the wisdom, the perfection, and the beauty of all that God planned. So that's where we're going this Christmas. What we're going to talk about is the idea of peace and God's plan. Um, the, the contrast is there's so much chaos in our world that we feel every day. Um, but we have peace in God's plan. Um, last week, Brian kicked us off, and he talked about Genesis 3 and where all this chaos started, back in the garden with Adam and Eve. They messed up everything for us, you know. <laughs> when they sinned, they messed it all up. God had this great plan, and they said, no, I, I want to make a plan. And guess what? Their plan wasn't as good. And so we're in this situation today of a chaotic world. And uh, at Christmas time, we talk about and we celebrate peace on earth. When the, when the angels were in the fields with the shepherds, they said, peace on earth, good, goodwill towards men, declaring that peace has come into our chaos. That, that, that Jesus, as a baby, would bring peace. He'd be the prince of peace. Jesus means peace to this earth. And why is that good news? When Adam and Eve sinned, they plunged this world into chaos. We've been in chaos ever since. Has there ever been a moment or a season where the world doesn't feel like it's falling apart? No. No, the world always feels like it's falling apart. Chaos is ironically predictable. It's predictable. You don't know what news you're going to wake up to tomorrow. Uh, I mentioned this before, but a couple months ago, I watched this presentation on the history of the church since Jesus. 
And I love the way they framed this because they framed it in terms of all the different crises that the world has faced over the last 2,000 years. Whether that's the fall of the Roman Empire, the plague, the Crusades, world wars. And they came back to this phrase that I love, and I think it speaks in our time too. They said, and everyone thought it was the end of the world. Everyone thought it was the end of the world. Everyone thought it was the end of the church. And then they say something like, but God had a different plan. But God had a different plan. Amazingly, God's plan survives all the ways that we think the world is falling apart. There are always going to be wars. There are always going to be health crises, pandemics. And there's always going to be some chaos in our own lives. There's always going to be some chaos in our own lives. No matter how hard we could try to control our own life and what happens and the outcomes of our decisions, chaos is always lurking around the corner. Two weeks ago, my wife and I took apart the front end of my car out in the street in front of our house, put it back together, everything's working great. This week, the engine light came on. It's like, seriously? You know, man. Yeah, who did that? I want to know. <laughs> Somebody in here, who put, who put sugar in my, no. Um, no, but this is, you know, here's a really real statement from the, the book of James. James is a wisdom book found in the New Testament, and I always have loved this verse, but it speaks to um, the insanity of us trying to control our lives. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We plan like we have all the time in the world and that everything's going to go our way. And we wake up and, and tomorrow there's chaos in our lives. We don't know what our health will be like. We don't know what tragedy will strike. We don't know what light is going to turn on in our car. <laughs> James says, come on, come on. Like, let's be reasonable here. What are you? You're a mist that appears for a while and vanishes. You're not in control of your own life. You live in a chaotic world. So with all that chaos, where can we find peace? Where can we find peace? In Jesus, in a manger in Bethlehem, God brought the Prince of Peace into the world. Jesus was God's gift of peace to a broken and weary world. It's like that Christmas hymn says, the Christmas carol, a weary world rejoices. We're in a world made weary by chaos. And Jesus is a piece that goes beyond just like a relaxation technique. I, I kind of chuckled this week thinking about peace and, and um, you know, George Costanza and Seinfeld when he says, serenity now, you know, that's his version of peace. Like if, if I just visualize serenity now, I'll have it. But Jesus offers a moment of serenity, offers more than a moment of serenity. He offers true inner peace, soul peace, reconnection to God. So Jesus came to rescue us from this chaos, to rescue us from this darkness, and that we can now have peace in God's plan. So over these next few weeks, we're going to talk about how Jesus is God's plan for your peace. That's it. Jesus is God's plan for your peace. 
He is the only plan that God has for you to experience peace. And in Jesus, you can have more peace in your life than you ever thought possible. So today in our search for peace, we're going to start, I admit, in a, in a weird passage. A weird passage. I would say that most of the times when we come to this passage, we fly over it. It's like a flyover state, you know? You never go to a flyover state on purpose, only to, unless you have family there. You only, you, 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 uh, you only go on business or something. Like, a few years ago, I went to Omaha, Nebraska. Anybody here been to Omaha, Nebraska? Few See? Not very many. <laughs> now, who here has been to San Diego? A lot more. It proves my point, okay? <laughs> so, so this passage is sort of like the Omaha of the Bible. I just, we'll just say that. It's sort of... I liked Omaha, actually. It's kind of a cool place. They got the College World Series there. They've got some cool shops and stuff like that. But this passage is a little bit like one we would fly over to get to the good parts of Scripture, we, we might think in our mind. Like, we want to be inspired. We don't want to be bored. Why would we spend time looking at this passage? And what this passage is, is the beginning of the book of Matthew. In the beginning of the book of Matthew, it doesn't immediately start with the Christmas story. It starts with a list of names. Really exciting. You go, oh no, oh no. We're gonna go, I'm gonna go through every name, like 28 names today. Oh, I'm kidding, I'm not gonna do that. But why would Matthew start an account, uh, start this account of Christ with this list of names? Doesn't he know that we, we're bored with names? Well, if you think about Matthew's original audience for this book, what Matthew is walking them through is their own family history. Matthew is writing to Jews. He's writing to a Jewish audience, and he writes out the genealogy of Jesus to say, hey, look, Jesus is part of the family. Jesus is part of the family. Two things. He, he writes this genealogy, this list of names, to show his Jewish audience that Jesus is not only one of them, but he's the rightful, not only the, the divine king, but the human king who came from their line. He's the fulfillment of the story. They've been waiting for a Messiah, meaning the anointed one. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And Matthew begins by recapping their history and, and introducing Jesus, who would be the fulfillment of the story. The second and mo more relatable to us is that he wants to show them that while Jesus is 100% God, he is also very much, he became 100% human. Because if you read the names on this list, this is not a clean list. This is, this is a list full of broken, messy people. That through this list of broken, messy people, Jesus, the Savior of the world, would come. Like Jerry Springer would have loved this list. He would have. And so we're going to see that some of the people on Jesus' family tree, they made some big mistakes, and then there were some that were just downright evil. E-V-I-L, evil. They were bad. And they're on this list. And through this broken tree came the Son of the living God. God works through our broken stories. God works through broken humanity. God broke into this dark world. And so... Here's the hard part of the message right now. We're actually going to read the list. Are you guys okay with that? Yes. You guys ready? 
Okay, all right, we're going to read the list. If you get bored, just maybe, maybe you're in a season where you're thinking about baby names. You know, this could be, <laughs> this could be a good, good list for that. No, I'm sorry. All right, we're going to start. We're going to read Matthew 1 through 1, and we're going to go all the way to verse 17. So, and I'm going to do my best with the names. So, here we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. It kind of keeps going like this, by the way. Um, Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, that's a good name right there for baby names. Uh, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. There you go. You did it, guys. Yeah. Right on. Right on. All right. So this is a group of names specifically told for a reason. They tell a story. This group of names tell a story. It's a story that's rooted in the patience and love of God to his people. One thing that we need to realize about God, God's not into quick fixes, right? God didn't come next generation after Adam and redeem the world. But no, he was patient and he broke into humanity slowly, slowly. This list doesn't start with Adam. There's another list, another genealogy in Luke that starts with Adam. This list starts with Abraham. Why does this start with Abraham? Because Abraham is the beginning of the story of Israel. So it starts with Abraham. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Matthew starts not at the beginning, but at this key starting point in God's redemption plan. The world was dark, and God called out one person, Abram, who became Abraham. He called to Abram. This is what it says in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So there's this dark world, and in the middle of it, one man gets a call. Abram gets a call from God to go to a land that God will show him. Start a family. And through this family, through this nation, the whole world would be blessed. This is God unfolding his plan. And even though God had this plan, there was still, it still hung on, on, on the obedience of this guy. Obedience was required to fulfill God's plan of redemption. In order for God's plan to be fulfilled, Abram had to move. And I love how simple it is. It just says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. So Abram went. What, what if that's as simple as life could be in Christ? God said it, so I'll do it. If God said it, I'll do it. God still calls us to obedience. We don't get to enter into the blessing of God without it. We have a part, and that part is called obedience. We don't passively follow Jesus. We have to believe in Jesus and, and act on it. Do something. Do something. And what you'll see in this list of names is that people are measured by their obedience. Did they do what was right in the sight of God, or did they do what was right in their own eyes and was evil in the sight of God? And you see this all throughout Scripture. It's like ping pong, back and forth. Good, evil, good, evil, good, evil. Back and forth throughout Scripture. Like, the, we, if, we, if we get it right for, if humanity gets it right for a while, just wait. We'll mess it up somehow. <laughs> and interestingly, there's a difference in Matthew's list and in Luke's list. And it's in the list of the names of the kings. So Luke, scholars think this. Scholars think that Luke veers into, in, during the king's portion, he stays with the genetic line of Joseph. What Matthew is focused on is the royal line that Jesus would enter into as the king of Israel. So that's the difference uh, that, that they think why it's there. They both start with King David. They both link Jesus to King David. But what we see in the list of kings, and we could focus on a lot of parts of this list, but I told you we don't have time, unless you want to be here for six hours. Uh, we're not going to do that to you. But if you, if you look at the list of the kings, it is fascinating. It is fascinating. The kings of Judah, after David, seven were good, seven were evil. Ping pong, ping pong, ping pong. Chaos in God's family. Chaos in God's family. We see split obedience in the life of King David. In Acts 13, it says that David was a man after God's own heart, that he did everything God wanted him to do. He lived in obedience. How does Matthew describe David here? David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Just a reminder that David stole someone else's wife and sent that husband to die in the front lines of a battle. Not, not great. Not great. 
No, David, David would repent of that sin, but his life would never be the same. His life after that moment was thrown into chaos, even though God forgave him and redeemed him. And so even for those who are close to God's heart, chaos still lurks. We can't escape it. Nobody can be good apart from God. We needed God to intervene. And David loved God, but yet his sin caused unspeakable chaos in his life and in the generations following. So the kings following David were really messy too. If you read through the books of, of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, they talk about those who did what was right in the sight of God and those who did evil. And it's back and forth. It's ping pong. Even Solomon, really great start, really wise, did a lot of great things. He ends up in his old age, married to 700 women and worshiping idols. His son, Rehoboam, was foolish beyond belief. With one speech, he divided the kingdom in two. You know, one bad speech. I always think about that before I preach. Like one, one bad sermon, man. It's, whoo, I sweat it every time. Uh, so after Solomon, there are seven good kings and seven bad kings of Judah. So this nation that would bring the Messiah was, couldn't keep it straight. Where They were flip-flopping back and forth. They were, they were obedient, and then they were evil. And so each king's life is a part of this chaotic story. And I want to zero in on one king to show you how bad it was. Um, there's a king in the list, King Manasseh. And he's listed here without much detail uh, in, in Jesus' family. Manasseh had a godly dad. He had one of the good ones as a dad, King Hezekiah. Hezekiah might have been the bravest king in Judah's history. Uh, he, at one point, had an Assyrian army of 180,000 uh, around Jerusalem in a siege, ready to take it over. And he trusted the Lord, and he prayed, and it says that God wiped out the whole army. Like, you think David and Goliath was cool. Like, Hezekiah, that's pretty cool. So, so one generation later, though, we have Manasseh. We have Manasseh. This is what the Bible says about this king. This is in Second Kings. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was something. Uh, Mephizabah. <laughs> what was it? Oh, hey, nice. Hepzibah, all right. No. Uh, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. Practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. This guy... This guy is in the line. This guy's a maniac. This guy is a maniac. One of the cults of that time were Molech, where they practiced this child sacrifice in the fire. He participated in that. 
sacrificing his own son. He defiled God's temple. He put pagan idols in a temple. Um, this is not a, a good guy. When Manasseh was in charge, evil and chaos reigned. And yet, for some crazy reason, it didn't derail God's plan. Even though this was the guy in charge of Judah for 55 years. And there are other instances of chaos that are more well known. We could go back and look at, you know, Rahab the prostitute is mentioned on this list. And God redeemed her. We could go back and talk about Judah sleeping with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. They're both on this list. But, man, this little description in the middle of the Old Testament shows you how bad it got. It shows you how bad it got. What is this dark king doing in the line of King Jesus? Manasseh had the knowledge of God. He had a, a, a godly hero figure of a dad. He had access to the temple. He grew up learning the scriptures. And yet, in the end, he chose his own way. So here's my point with all of this. Without God at the center, human hearts breed darkness and chaos. Without God at the center, without his will at the center of your life, your hearts breed darkness and chaos. We don't have capacity to get it right apart from God. And the reason why we don't have capacity to get it right apart from God is because we don't know what is right apart from God. We don't. We don't know what is right apart from God. God is holy. God is good. What are we? There's a German theologian and pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, very famous. He, he died at the hands of the Nazis in World War II. But he talked about humanity having a fundamental problem, is that when we rejected God's way, we left ourselves in the dark. And this is what he said. He said, instead of knowing the only God who is good to him, and instead of knowing all the things in him, he now knows himself as the origin of good and evil. So it's like when Adam and Eve sinned, their center of like ethics, morality, what is good, went from God to them. They're the line. They decide what is good and what is bad. And that's evil in God's eyes. That's why we all have a fundamental problem. When we are at the center of what is right, we have a problem, a big problem. A big problem. And apart from knowing God, like if you, read, if you read John, it describes the whole world as being in darkness. Apart from a touch from God, knowledge of God, we don't know where the line is, what we're supposed to do, who we're supposed to be. And that's what Bonhoeffer was getting at. Without God, we decide what's good and what's evil. We judge. And that's what you see in the kings of Israel. They're put in a powerful position. And each one decides, am I going to put God at the center, or am I going to put what I want at the center? Am I going to be the center of what's right? And so seven chose to put God at the center, seven chose not to. When you put God and his plan at the center of your life, there is peace and blessing. There is peace and blessing. When you put you and your plans at the center it ends in chaos and death. And that might seem dramatic, but that's what this is saying. So friends, let me ask you, who's at the center of your life? Who is at the center of your life? Is Jesus at the center? Is God's will at the center? 
And maybe you're here today wondering, well, how can I know God's will? How can I know Jesus? I'm so glad you're here and asking that question. Because Jesus came so that you could know him. And Jesus has a church. Jesus has a, a wor his word, the Bible, so that we can know him. That we can know Jesus. John says that Jesus is the word. Like all the truth about God is found in Jesus. And that's why when we, we follow Jesus, we follow him into what God always wanted us to be. Jesus is the truth of God. Sometimes approaching our Bible can feel really overwhelming, right? Like, oh, where do I start? Where do I start? Just know that the Bible points towards Jesus, the Bible reveals Jesus, and the Bible explains Jesus. Old Testament looks forward, the Gospels speak of who Jesus is, and then the teachings after the Gospels talk about Jesus. And then Revelation tells us what's to come. This great uh, moment where we are united with God. And all is made new. So, how do we get there? I want to share this with you too. I, I, I ragged on this king named Manasseh. If you read Second Chronicles 33, even Manasseh had a point of repentance with God. Even Manasseh repented. It was pretty extreme. It was, it was a lot of... Uh, a lot of crisis to get him there. It says he was taken by hooks to prison in Assyria. So I would imagine at the end of that point, you're, you're thinking your plans may not be working so well. But it said, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of God and humbled himself greatly before God, the, uh, the God of his fathers. And it says, and God was moved. Even Manasseh. Even Manasseh, when he repented, God restored. So even you, even the person you, you see as farthest from God is not that far from God. Is not that far from God. All you need to do is recognize that you can't do it on your own, that you can't be good on your own, and that you need Jesus. And you could even say that this morning. Jesus, I need you. Enter my life. Restore me. And you would be saved. And you would be saved. A second way we get to know Jesus is through his family, called the church. What I love about the list is it shows how broken and messed up God's family was getting to Jesus and now, after Jesus, we get to live in this community, this family, that he's actively restoring. We're still messy, but Jesus is actively restoring us because Jesus is at the center of it. Jesus is at the center of the family. So if Jesus is at the center, you can't help but change. And, and the family can't help but change because he brings restoration. We're going to look at what it says in Ephesians 2.19. It says, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. 
In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That is the church. I like that it doesn't say we are built. We are being built, right? We are in process. We're being built into a temple, like a spiritual place where God, God's presence can dwell. And that's what Jesus came to, to turn his family into, is a place where God can live, God can be, God can direct with him at the center, the chief cornerstone, as it says right here. And I like that it says, we're no longer foreigners and strangers. Like, before we come to Christ, like, we don't know what's going on with, with this whole thing. But we're welcomed in to become citizens, and it says members of his household. Like a family member. I was thinking this week about this idea of being in the house of God. You know, imagine, imagine that you've lived your whole life in a tent, right? In, in darkness, in a tent. And here is God opening the door to you, saying, come on into my house. This is my house. Come on in, eat, be with my people. Like, that's, that's what it's like on a spiritual level, is we are, we are welcomed into the house of God. He brings us out of chaos into his house. And so here's where I want to land today. Jesus came to be the center of our transformed hearts and new family, the church. If you, if you just take one takeaway, just know that Jesus wants to be the center. Jesus wants to be the center of our lives as our king. He wants to be the center of our church. He wants to be the center of, of everything going on in your life. And the question for you is, is he worthy of that to you? Is Jesus worthy of that to you? Is Jesus at the center of your life? Have you let him take that space? Or are you still at the center? Because we, it's in the name of our church, Christ the King, right? What are we about? It's in the name, Christ the King. He wants to be king of our hearts, and that's how transformation happens. This is not a religious code that we follow, right? It's not that we do these things, and it's not an economical relationship where oh, we'll just do these things, and then God does his thing, and that's how it works, this is not a, a, a consumer-type relationship. This is, this is king and Lord gui um, uh, uh, gui guiding our life, directing our life, handing over control, and trusting that when we follow Jesus, there will be peace and there will be blessing. We won't be at odds with God. We won't be at odds with God. And the amazing thing is, is that when we follow Jesus, he says we won't be at odds with each other, that walls of hostility come down. So that's, that's awesome too. So when we meet Jesus, we meet the truth. Not just about God, but about ourselves. Not just about God, but, but he tells us who we are and who we were meant to be. Kind of brings life to the line when Jesus says in John 10 that he came that we may have life and have it to the full. Right? Because he knows what a full life is. We don't. We think we know. We think we know, yet if you read any amount of biographies of people who chase fame and money and fortune, they'll say it's kind of empty, right? There's something else that we need. 
And so Jesus came to transform our hearts and call us into a new family. A new family, it's still messy. We're not a finished product, but man, we are in process because Jesus is at the center. And he's greater than anything we've done or could possibly do, right? Like if Manasseh can find restoration, you can. You can. Jesus is greater than, than anything we can throw at him from our lives, any shame we might be hiding. Jesus is greater. And in Jesus, we have a new beautiful community where we're learning to live and to love like him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the, your, the gift of your arrival on earth. That light came into darkness. That light that reveals the truth about God and the truth about us entered our world so that we could have access to God. We could have access to the truth about God. So Lord, we just want to praise you this morning. We want to continue to praise you. And we thank you for all that you are and all that you will do. And we pray for this Christmas that you would be at the center. That maybe this is a time where we say, nope, I'm done messing around. I just want Jesus at the center of my life. I want his presence with me. And so, Lord, we, we pray for that to be our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're going to do today is we're going to take communion. And this is an opportunity for you to recalibrate, to invite Jesus back to the center of your life. We do this every month. Jesus asked us to do this, to remember him. And I always see communion as a time to just come before Jesus, thank him for what he's done, and, and get right with him. Ask him, Jesus, am I living in the way you want me to live? And so what we're going to invite you to do is come forward. Um, if you are a believer, take the cup, take the bread, take it back to your seat, and then we'll take communion together here in a moment.